The Energy Gang is brought to you by Keiko New Energy, the fastest-growing solar inverter company in the Americas. Keiko has been in business for more than 100 years and has been making superior German-quality PV inverters since the 1990s. In fact, it's been manufacturing many of them right in San Antonio, Texas since 2013. With a wide range of residential, commercial, and utility-scale inverters, Keiko works with developers and installers in every corner of the solar market, making it the preferred brand across the U.S. and throughout the Americas. Learn more about Keiko's superior quality and service at keiko-newenergy.com. That's Keiko, K-A-C-O-newenergy.com. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, a weekly digest on energy, clean tech, and the environment. I'm Stephen Lacey. The headwinds for coal are strong and coming from every direction. Since 2010, more than 250 coal plants in America have been shuttered or are set to close. Meanwhile, in the most energy-hungry regions of the world, thousands of megawatts of new coal plants have been halted. This week, we're covering coal from a bunch of different angles. First, the steady drumbeat of plant closures in the U.S. What has caused them, and what comes next? We'll talk about the just-announced closure of the biggest coal plant in the West, and how it encompasses all the complicated factors around the transition away from coal. Then, a clean coal redux. As billions of dollars in cost overruns mount at America's first CCS plant, the coal industry looks to the White House for more support. And finally, the international picture. Coal is still the dominant source of generation around the world, but new build-outs are slowing in key countries. Can we say that peak coal has arrived yet? From Boston, welcome. In Washington, D.C. is my regular co-host, Catherine Hamilton. She's a partner at 38 North Solutions. Hello, Catherine. Hi. How are you doing today, Stephen, in this kind of cold day? It's not the end of winter yet. Jigger is not with us this week. He's currently wandering around the facilities of BYD, I think, getting the lowdown on Chinese EV manufacturing. But our guest co-host is no stranger to podcasting and certainly no stranger to the subject at hand. Marianne Hitt is the director of the Beyond Coal campaign at the Sierra Club, and she's also the co-host of a newish podcast on climate change called No Place Like Home. So if you're interested in the personal stories behind climate science, activism, and climate impacts, I highly recommend it. Marianne, welcome. She joins us from West Virginia. How are you? Um, It is such a pleasure to be with you. I have been a listener and a fan for a long time. And as you mentioned, I'm a podcaster myself and an energy nerd as well. So I'll do my best to to fill Jigger's shoes here and bring you the view from West Virginia. Well, you're the perfect fit for the podcast. We're so thrilled to have you here. And I'd like to actually just start off with some of your background because you're from Tennessee, you live in West Virginia, you know coal country really well. How did you get into thinking about the transition beyond coal and working within coal communities themselves? I started working on coal when I was the executive director of a group called Appalachian Voices. And at that time, I had grown up in the Smoky Mountains. I love Appalachia. My daughter is an 11th generation West Virginian through my husband's side of the family. 
And so I started doing this work to stop this devastating form of coal mining called mountaintop removal. And that connected me to the power plants that were demanding all that coal. Initially, uh, within the Sierra Club, we were working to stop a new wave of 200 coal plants that were on the drawing board during the Bush years and uh, had a lot of success there. 184 of those were stopped by a really, really remarkable grassroots network of community leaders. And that then took us to all of the existing plants and uh, trying to figure out a way to power this country uh, without creating all the air pollution and climate problems and water pollution problems that come from coal, and not to mention all the public health problems. Can you explain exactly what you all do at the Beyond Coal campaign? Because there are a lot of people, maybe a, a good number of our listeners from the energy industry who kind of see Sierra Club as waging this blind war against coal without a lot of thought to consequences to energy markets or communities who rely on coal. And as you said, you've been working in these communities for a long time. You understand them. And it's really complex. The the you know the campaign focuses just as much on the clean stuff and the transition as it does on sh- shutting down the dirty stuff. So how would you describe your mission and strategy? Well, there are millions of Americans who have been on the receiving end of unchecked pollution from power plants and coal mines for a long time, whether that's people down river from coal ash spills, uh, a mom of a child with asthma living next to a coal plant in a community, folks in Appalachia who have higher rates of birth defects, cancer, other health problems uh, because they live next to mountaintop removal coal mines. And so really the Beyond Coal campaign is a, is a network and a movement of all of those folks who uh, have found ways over a decade plus of working together to actually get into the venues where decisions are being made about how we make electricity, utility commissions, city councils, state legislatures, and make sure those voices are heard and the the voices of those folks feeling the brunt of the pollution are in the room and then also that we're bringing the very best, most cutting edge economic information about renewable energy and energy efficiency because oftentimes uh, the utilities and the operators of the coal plants um, aren't, aren't putting that information forward to regulators and are instead seeking to prop up coal plants and at, often at the expense of the customers who are paying for the electricity. So we're really representing the public interest of both people paying electric bills and people who are at the receiving end of the pollution. So Marianne, I was uh, watching on MSNBC, Chris Hayes had a town hall in West Virginia, and one of the guests, uh, they were all Trump voters, essentially, at this town hall, and one of the speakers is a coal miner, and he said, all I care about is I want a good job and I want good health care. So as these plants are shutting down, what can the campaign do to show that there are other jobs? Or is there even some kind of um, move to replace those jobs, given that, you know, Jigger has come on the show and said they all should just get a bus ticket out of West Virginia? Well, you know, that's probably not what those people want to do. So what are you doing to kind of make up for the loss of jobs? Well, first of all, thank you, Catherine. I have heard you speak up for uh, the beautiful mountains of West Virginia and why people may not want to get a bus ticket and head on out. So thank you very much for that. Um, and there, I would separate this into two pieces. The first are the power plants. And um, in a lot of these cases, the vast majority, there is a 10, 15, even 20 year window between the announced retirement of the plan and the actual retirement. And in that time, 
the workers in the plant either retire themselves or are given other jobs in these very large utilities. Um, so it's not always the case, but it is uh, predominantly the case. Uh, but the second piece is a lot tougher, and it's in coal mining states and communities like West Virginia, where I live. And what really struck me about the Bernie Sanders town hall that I think we have uh, far too little of here in coal states was the honesty and the compassion. Uh, right now, what we hear from our political leaders in coal mining states is that it's all going to come back um, as soon as these pesky environmental regulations are are swept out of the way. And um, there's no acknowledgement of the market forces. There's no acknowledgement of the grassroots advocacy of communities who want clean energy uh, to provide their power. And so people are, are unfortunately, we don't have the, the kind of leadership that we need to say, things are changing, the world is changing, let's figure out a plan to diversify our economy and take advantage of the other great assets we have here, like our art and all, our culture and our music and our natural beauty. We aren't having the kind of honest conversation that you saw with Bernie Sanders, unfortunately, with our own political leaders. Um, but if and when we can start having that conversation, let's get federal resources into the region. Let's provide workforce training and economic diversification. We've got incredible assets here in the region to build on if we have the resources and the leadership. So how are you trying to leverage those resources in your campaign, you know, and, and whose responsibility is this? Is it is it the equal responsibility of folks like you who are, you know, waging a pretty aggressive legal battle? Is it the states and local leaders or is it the federal government that needs to come in and say, we need to develop much better worker training programs? How should that break down in your eyes? Well, I feel like it's the responsibility of all Americans. Uh, you know, we all stand on the shoulders of Appalachian coal miners who made great sacrifices to power the Industrial Revolution, and not just by sacrificing their own health and safety, but our own mountains and our our own natural resources and sort of natural capital of one of the most beautiful and diverse uh temperate forest ecosystems on the planet. And so uh, all of America has benefited from the sacrifices of coal communities. And I think uh, we should be making a national investment in making those places whole, whether it's communities around power plants or around uh, coal mines. And, you know, we can do this. We're, as Bernie Sanders said in the town hall with Chris Hayes, we're the wealthiest community in the wealthiest nation in the history of the world. Uh, you know, we have transitioned uh, from the horse and the buggy to the car, you know, and we we can do this with without leaving people behind, and and that's what we need to do, I think, as a nation. Can we just talk about coal's current status here in the U.S.? It's a bit of a mixed picture because of these market dynamics and seasonal variability. The trend is generally downward, though. So coal production, actual mining, which we've been talking about, which impacts these communities directly, peaked around two thousand eight. Last year, for the first time, later in the year, natural gas outpaced coal in terms of generation. That may switch back depending on where natural gas prices go. Um, EIA, I think, expects coal generation to creep back up as natural gas prices also kind of creep. But just last week, analysts at the credit rating agency Moody's said that 56 gigawatts of coal plants are now facing pretty steeply eroding economics or maybe even complete shutdowns because of 
just cheap wind alone. And as I mentioned up front, 251 coal plants have closed or are set to close since you started the Beyond Coal campaign. So what does this all amount to? Despite a lot of these challenges, coal is virtually tied with gas as the second biggest generation source in the U.S. Um, what what can we say about coal's place in America's energy mix today? The short summary I would give is it's in a structural decline. So we were getting 50% of our electricity from coal about a decade ago. That is now down to a record low in recorded history of about a third of our electricity. And you will see it kind of bounce up and down uh, over the period of months, just depending on all kinds of market forces and weather and supply and demand. But the the long-term trend is down and it isn't turning around for a couple of reasons. One, because we aren't building any new coal plants in this country. There, as I mentioned earlier, a wave of them uh, proposed back in the Bush years, almost all of those were stopped. Uh, the existing plants aren't getting any younger, and many of them are out of compliance with kind of modern health and safety standards, so they still don't have some basic pollution control device on them like a scrubber, and so they are causing serious health problems and are at some point going to have to uh, reckon with those. That's a lot of what our advocacy is focused on. But then there's this new, as you mentioned, this new development, which is the, is having trouble competing not just with natural gas, but increasingly wind and in some places even solar energy. And so we have seen, even since the election, a wave of these coal plants that have either announced retirement or have announced they are teetering on the edge of retirement. Uh, and it's because they, they they cannot sell their power anymore at a competitive price. And, uh, you know, I, I love the energy gang and I love your your podcast and all your listeners but i think sometimes the one piece of that equation that that uh you all miss is the role of advocacy because even uh, even when it comes to the economics you still have to have public interest advocates bringing those compelling economics into the room because what the utilities and the coal plant operators are often doing is trying to get bailouts so that their coal plants can be insulated from those market forces. And we've seen that a lot of times in uh, Ohio as a, as a recent example where uh, the utilities are trying to get 10 and 15 year sort of locked in rates for their power plants so that they can weather these un charted uh, economic waters. And as advocates, we have to be there in the room saying, actually, there's a better deal for the customers and the ratepayers, um, And it's renewable energy and it's energy efficiency. Yeah. So the question I had um, was, the, yes, local advocacy sounds really important because states have been doing some crazy things to try to save these industries that are that are really, um, you know, backward looking and will actually hurt their consumer base. But how about on the federal side? I mean, Trump has promised he's going to bring these jobs back. So does he have a pathway to the, do that at all? Frankly, I don't see a pathway for Trump to bring back coal um, for, you know, the reasons that I mentioned that we we just don't see and there's no new source of demand in sight that's popping up. We're not building new coal plants here. There was just a big report out, uh, the boom and bust report out this week that lots of folks have reported on that global coal demand is um, is on a downward trend as well. But what I do worry about is that Trump will roll back these different environmental standards and just leave more pollution behind. So the stream protection rule, which was really about more about 
uh, reclamation around streams and just taking a little bit better care of streams during coal mining, by getting rid of that, by getting rid of other air and water standards, uh, it isn't going to bring coal back to any measure because the economics and the grassroots pressure isn't going to go away. But it could very well mean that people who live near coal plants and coal mines have less recourse if they have health problems or if their property value is uh, or if their property is harmed. Um, so it could mean that no no real change for the coal industry, but very real problems for regular folks living near power plants. And, um, and you know, ultimately just uh, the chipping away of the Clean Air and the Clean Water Act, which is important to us all. There are a few points here that are good for debate and discussion. Um, you said that you think we kind of underplay the role of environmentalists in bringing forward the economic case of renewables on the local level. You know, I will say I agree with you on that. When I, I think I first met you around 2012 when um, I went in to chat with you as a reporter at Climate Progress to talk about what you guys were up to at the Beyond Coal campaign. And I, I kind of assumed that it was just a one-dimensional legal battle to shut down coal plants. And then it became pretty clear to me that there was a lot of these local economic development efforts and a lot of attempts to try to get people to think about filling the gap with renewable energy projects and making a clearer case for the economics. And gosh, at that time, the economics were so different than they are today. I bet that conversation's a lot easier. I will say, though, that the impacts of why these coal plants are shutting down, they're wide-ranging. And one of the biggest impacts that everyone points to is natural gas prices. And so early on in the campaign, the Sierra Club got blowback from its members for taking money from the natural gas industry to support this effort and has since then responded to its members and said that we don't believe that natural gas is the solution. But I would argue and many others would argue that clearly natural gas played an outsized role in forcing many of these plants to shut down. Um, and I'm just curious what your view is on its role in transitioning away from coal? Well, the this wave of very cheap natural gas has obviously been a big factor in upending the life and business as usual uh, in the electric sector. And, you know, we are all swimming in that water together as advocates in the industry and utilities and everybody else. Um, at the Sierra Club, we are pushing now um, to leapfrog over natural gas as fast as we can, because looking at, especially with Trump in the White House, uh, with what we need to do to hit our Paris target, with what we need to do to hit the targets of the clean power plan, just replacing all the coal with natural gas is not is is not going to get us to our climate targets. And then obviously you have all of the, the pollution, water pollution problems and the local impacts of natural gas development that we and our members are very worried about. So, uh, you know, having natural gas come into the market has definitely been a big factor in uh, pushing out coal and I wouldn't want to sugarcoat that or pretend otherwise. And at the same time, as advocates, what we are doing in this new and ever-changing world is to figure out, okay, how do we how do we leapfrog over gas as fast as we can? We actually just released a report, and there are over 200 new natural gas plants on the drawing board around the country. And if we lock in all of that natural gas capacity, not only is it a fossil fuel, but it's also... Uh, that's the investment we would rather see in wind and solar and energy efficiency. So we're really trying to 
to sort of use all of our experience and our network of advocates to make sure that as much as we can, we're driving investment into renewable energy and away from any fossil fuel. And I'm sure it does not help when Congress is using the the um, Congressional Review Act to try to roll back things like methane emission rules and um, other environmental protections that do make it harder for natural gas. There's no doubt about it. The, the coal and gas industries have lots of friends in high places these days, and they're making our job harder. And at the same time, you know, we are at a new it's a new day when it comes to the economics of renewable energy and from the local jobs and the economic opportunity that are coming from renewable energy, which is by far and away, you know, one of the biggest growth sectors in the economy, as you know, to the, all of, all of the, all the oper- local opportunities to create energy without pollution. Uh, it's kind of a win, win, win. And, you know, again, I live in West Virginia. People are very worried here about gas pipelines and about fracking in our state. And it's a lot of the same people who have who have dealt with coal pollution in their water and in their backyards for a very long time who are now feeling like they've hopped out of the frying pan into the fire and don't want to just trade sort of one fossil fuel boss for another, uh, but would really like to move on. And so that's uh, th- that's that's definitely where we are pushing. Well, it's also you're in a better place with technology, too. So the cost of energy storage has greatly declined. And companies like AES that will be closing two of of its um, subsidiary coal plants in Ohio is also a huge investor in energy storage and, you know, uses the line all the time that energy storage can replace um, any kind of peaker peaker plants. So, I mean, technology has also been coming down in cost so that you actually have solutions that you can provide um, that are flexible and can, you know, provide the same or better service than traditional power plants. I want to talk about one project that I think brings together all the complications of this transition away from coal. So it's the Navajo Generation Station. This is this 2200 megawatt coal plant on the Navajo Indian Reservation in Arizona. It's the biggest coal plant in the western US, if I'm not mistaken. It's come under pressure from environmental groups for a long time for its severe pollution problems. It's now under financial pressure from natural gas. But at the same time, it accounts for hundreds of jobs for the Navajo and Hopi people and accounts for, uh, according to a press report that I read, a third of the Navajo's operating budget. So closing this plant would be a public health win, but it's economically a hit. And so the Navajo are now lobbying Trump. They're asking the feds to do anything they can to keep the plant going. They're saying publicly to the White House, you came in here with a promise to save coal. This is your single best opportunity. So there's a lot going on here. And I know you've also been thinking about how to bring solar into the region to make up for lost jobs. So how do all these factors complicate closure of a plant this big? Well, as you mentioned, uh, this really is kind of a, a microcosm of the bigger forces at work the all of the owners and operators of this plant uh, have I mean, the way that I have heard it described is that they are trying to sell three and a half cent power into a two cent market and a plant that I think people had expected to operate for decades, including the Navajo Nation, is now suddenly perhaps going to close as early as 2019 
if not sooner. And so as you would expect, the folks who are most economically sort of in the in the crosshairs of that are looking for some help and support. There are there are actually a lot of other similar cases around the country right now where there are coal plants that are suddenly looking out even 12 months and realizing that no one wants to buy the power at the rate they're selling it when uh, there's so many cheaper alternatives out there. And that is where the need for an honest and compassionate conversation about a transition and leadership around that transition is so desperately needed. And I think it's even more so the case uh, uh, around the Navajo generating station where you not only have a lot of employment and ownership of the plant and the, by the Navajo and Hopi nations, uh, there's still a lot of people on those reservations without electricity. There's still a lot of folks on those reservations without access to clean water. This power plant is a big user of water and what happens to the water rights is, is a big open question. And, um, you know, as much as uh, we, again, as Americans have benefited from the power from this power plant and have benefited from the sacrifice of folks who work there and who gave up their clean air and their clean water, uh, I think we owe uh, a debt and I think we need leadership around the transition to make sure folks are made whole. But just, you know, walking away is definitely not in what the Sierra Club would ever advocate and, and not what we think is the right solution. Uh, and that is where that leadership is so, so important and so needed. And this is, as you said, the perfect example of how the structural changes in the electricity market are making these plants less competitive. And so the conversation is completely different from a few years ago for this massive coal plant. And I know that some of the utility partners have over the last year or two divested from the plant because it's just such a challenging plant to make money from. So a really powerful example of how the situation has reversed. So do the Navajo see you as a partner or as a threat? Well, I think as is the case with any major stakeholder, it's it's more nuanced than that. And, um, you know, there are native leaders on the Navajo and the Hopi Reservation who are calling for a transition, who are calling for addressing these longstanding uh, energy access issues and water pollution and air pollution issues. Uh, and I'm sure that there are plenty of folks who um, are not fans of the Sierra Club there, but I think there are plenty of others who uh, see the writing on the wall and are, are ready for some leadership and some compassion around a, a transition. I mean, again, here in West Virginia, where I live, where I'm sure there's plenty of folks who are not fans of the Sierra Club, uh, we also uh, are far more familiar with the impacts of coal and coal pollution than most Americans. And so when you're living close to these issues, um, while again, you may not may not always be fans of the environmental advocates, you also are uh, intimately familiar with the problems that are, are tied to coal and, um, and just how urgent the need is for real thought and leadership around a transition and not just finger pointing. Yeah, it sounds like um, with the Navajo plant that there are going to be four colleges in the region that are coming in together to build a higher education center um, for training and education. And it sounds like that's a big need throughout Appalachia as well as trying to make sure that we bring up the STEM skills of um, the folks in the area so that 
when kids are done with school, they they're actually able to get to get good jobs. Is it? It would seem to me that like all the the structural economic changes that are underway are starting to make your job easier because you've been talking about this for eight years now. You've had a lot of wins. I don't want to undersell like how hard you've been working. But now all of a sudden, people are talking about massive worker retraining programs, the clean energy revolution that is now putting pressure on traditional fossil fuels. So the market forces that are at play are contributing to the narrative that you've been pushing for a number of years. Does that change? How do you ride that, I guess, is my question. Well, uh, and I touched before on, I think, sort of under underappreciating sometimes the value of advocacy. And just as a as a anecdote here, back in 2010, 2011, all of the analysts, you know, Moody's, Goldman Sachs, BNSF, uh, or, I'm sorry, BNEF, et cetera, SNL were predicting something in the range of 10% of the coal plants in the United States having uh, announced to retire by now. And the Sierra Club was predicting 30% because we were building in the role of advocacy into our our model, which we build a predictive model of every coal plant and boiler in the United States and sort of what we thought their prospects were. So five years ago, folks were saying 10%, we said 30%, and and we were right. We we have hit 30% of, over 30% now of the coal generation in the U.S. announced to retire. What the experts are projecting today for coal retirements out to 2030 is actually what's already been announced uh, through the advocacy and work that we have been doing and what we've been tracking. So um, I think in terms of how what we do in this moment and how we move forward, there's two things. One, I think, again, because of advocacy, we're going to move a lot farther than most of the analysts are predicting in terms of coal retirements and ramping up renewable energy. Um, secondly, though, uh, you know, we we have it's almost like a new campaign for us because in prior years, all of our arguments were around public health and climate change and the need for these plants to be responsible and no longer cause tens of thousands of asthma attacks and heart attacks every year. But we now have the economics on our side and we never had that before. And I think, as I mentioned before, sometimes it is up to advocates to bring the economics of clean energy into these decision-making venues with utility commissions, city councils, state legislatures, and say not only is this power plant causing asthma attacks and heart attacks, but um, there's a cheaper alternative out there and it's ready to go today and you can save money for folks here with renewable energy. And that being able to make that economic argument is a whole new ballgame for us and is going to be a defining element of the work that we're doing going forward. We should get on to the second segment here, but I do have to ask you about the clean power plan. Um, You know, given what Scott Pruitt and the White House plan to do to dismantle climate regulations and environmental regulations, what role are the environmental groups going to play in bringing legal firepower to that battle? So right now, as we are recording Thursday afternoon, our legal director, Pat Gallagher, is testifying in Congress around the confirmation for Supreme Court uh, Justice uh, Gorsuch and someone we see as a very uh, alarming choice for uh, 
citizens' abilities to enforce our clean air and clean water standards. So that's one small example of the incredible uh, might that the environmental community is bringing to defend our environment. I have never seen, I'm in the middle of our federal uh, work to defend against all of these attacks, and I have never seen the environmental community so coordinated and uh, so focused as I uh, as I do now. And we do have many brilliant attorneys. We have new members and supporters coming in because people are really alarmed about the threats we're facing. And so as, as hard as it is, and I know Catherine knows this, to see the news about rollbacks to this program or that regulation coming day by day, uh, the one thing that does give me a great amount of solace and hope is the sophistication and the determination and the breadth of the defensive effort that we're able to mount. This is the moment of the show when we stop the tape and talk about our sponsor, Keiko New Energy. We are grateful to have Keiko as a sponsor. Keiko New Energy is one of the fastest-growing inverter companies in the Americas, a result of its commitment to quality, top-notch performance, and state-of-the-art technology. Keiko produces a robust portfolio of inverters for residential, commercial, and utility-scale applications, Leading developers continue to choose Keiko because of its superior engineering and unmatched levels of technical support and customer service. Keiko produces its inverters for the Americas in San Antonio, Texas, where 20% of its employees are U.S. military veterans. Keiko is ready to serve any installer or developer looking to maximize their solar production. You can learn more about Keiko's inverter models and its commitment to quality at keiko-newenergy.com. Thanks for their support. Let's move on to clean coal. America's flagship clean coal project, the Kemper County Power Plant, is facing yet more delays. Southern Company said this month it's going to push out the opening by a month or more, sending the plant more than $5 billion over budget. So according to a recent filing, Southern says it will need to rate base more than $25 million per month until it finally starts generating electricity at the plant. Think about that. $25 million per month. I think the numbers could rise to $35 million per month uh, rate-based uh, until the plant opens up. So for a deeper discussion on everything that went wrong with Kemper, go back to our episode in July of last year. We walked through the whole debacle. Now the industry, buoyed by Trump's win, is lining up and asking for more federal subsidies to support additional clean coal projects. In a letter this month, coal associations and companies asked the White House to protect the Office of Fossil Energy from massive budget cuts in order to support R&D in new generations of coal technology. And I believe that that was one of the offices that did not get cut. So is clean coal going to make a resurgence, uh, at least a public relations resurgence? Or are utilities going to stay clear for economic reasons? Catherine, do you have any hope for clean coal at the commercial scale? <laughs> um, all you have to do is talk to Louis Miller of the Sierra Club down in Mississippi to to hear what he has to say, because he he's great about saying you just can't make this stuff up. Um, uh, and the plant that they overspent by billions and billions of dollars is never going to burn coal. It's burning gas. And it just that technology is not ready. It hasn't it, it, it seems like it's one of those zombie technologies that somehow just keeps lurking in the background, but it never actually does anything except eat money. And, um, I, you know, it would be great if we could come up with some new technology that could actually deal with emissions and eat up emissions. But building more plants to burn coal in hopes of eating those emissions just doesn't seem 
in in a number of ways to make any sense. I have made it very clear that in order to deeply decarbonize, I'm very supportive of R&D efforts across the spectrum, and that means figuring out uh, ways to clean up fossil fuels. So actually, when you look at this letter from the coal industry, I would say that calling for um, government funding to you know maintain government funding for R&D for CCS seems super reasonable to me. But then when you look at how this is going to get deployed in the market and Southern Company's experience with the Kemper plant debacle, they're $5 billion over budget. It's a $7 billion project. They initially said it was going to cost a couple of billion dollars. Um, I just don't see any utilities really wanting to touch this. This is now in the nuclear camp uh, it's in the coal camp, uh, the conventional coal camp. I, I mean, without massive government support and additional loan guarantees, I just do not see how this succeeds, even if the Trump administration really wanted to do something. I mean, maybe they could restructure some loan guarantees uh, and and support a few projects. But my guess is even with some of that government support, government financial support directly for projects, that there probably won't be many utilities who actually want to touch this. Natural gas and renewables are far more, far easier and more economic to deploy. Yeah, I think if you see a lot of money going into to research for uh, carbon capture from coal plants, it's more of a testament to the political clout of the coal industry than anything else, uh, especially when you have... Uh, so much opportunity in just about every part of the country around deploying more wind and solar. Um, and, you know, I think that, uh, you know, there before we had wind and solar um, that were so competitive, uh, the economic argument for having coal capturing its carbon was a different one, I think. I think it's in a, in a different world now and there are so many alternatives. Uh, one of my one of my mentors in the West Virginia coal fields, Judy Bonds, used to always say, even if you could get marshmallows to come out of the smokestacks, uh, it still wouldn't solve all of the other problems that come from mining and burning coal. So, you know, we can't forget the blown up mountains, and we can't forget um, the the other parts of the pollution from coal's life cycle. But in a in a day when you have, uh, you know, some regions of the country almost awash in wind and solar with huge more opportunity to absorb more of it on the grid, it's hard to make the case that this is a smart investment. So you can have R&D no matter what. But if you're advocating for commercial deployment of CCS, the Trump administration's current policies make it less likely that the industry will will want to deploy these projects. You, politically, you just can't have both. So if you put policies in place for carbon constraints, then maybe in certain areas, with the right government support, CCS makes sense. If you dismantle them and send the exact opposite signal, CCS looks a lot less attractive. Um, I think what the coal industry is arguing is just R&D here. But if you truly want to get commercial deployment of carbon capture technologies, the way the Trump administration is going about it makes it far less likely that anyone's going to invest in, in this because there's no price on carbon. There's no signal in the market or no policy signal whatsoever that um, environmental performance is important. Moving on. If the King Cole moniker still stands, it's in the global context. 
Around the world, developing countries have relied primarily on coal to feed their growing need for energy. But we appear to be witnessing a reversal. According to a global coal plant tracker from Coal Swarm, the number of coal plants in the pre-construction phase fell by half from 2016 to 2017. New construction fell by 62% over the same period. And in the two biggest coal-consuming countries, China and India, construction of coal plants is down by a fifth. So, in fact, just this week, Beijing switched off its final coal plant within the city limits. It is, however, still getting coal electricity from plants outside the city, but a telling milestone, and China has frozen a ton of coal projects. Uh, Marianne, the, the Sierra Club actually participated in the authorship of this recent report on coal construction activity globally. Since this turnaround is relatively new, I know you've been talking to a few people in your office about the global situation. Um, since this turnaround is relatively new, do you get the sense that this is a trend yet? Can can we say that we've that we've reached peak coal or we're nearing peak coal globally? What would you conclude from this? I do think the folks in our uh, on our team feel that we are at some sort of tipping point or at some turnaround point, and. Um, you know, for a host of reasons that are outlined in this great boom and bust report, including uh, everything that's happened in China. I found one of the most interesting uh, tidbits from the report was that 55 gigawatts of coal plants already under construction in China have been halted midway through, and uh, which is almost, I think, kind of unthinkable and unheard of. Um, and similarly, in, in India, the they just... The, the coal plants that they have been building are already struggling and there does not seem to be appetite to keep going. And when you're in my position as a domestic advocate, uh, that is oftentimes the first response out of people's mouth as well. Even if we reduce our coal use here, what about China and India? What about the rest of the world? If they just keep keep going, uh, doesn't that make our, our efforts uh, futile. And I think this report clearly demonstrates that that is not the case. And whether it's because of local air pollution concerns, whether it's because the the markets can't absorb uh, the power, or whether it's uh, because of the fact that the whole world is still going to move forward on tackling climate change, which is, is already hitting many of these countries very hard, um, it does appear that we have reached some kind of turnaround. Yeah, it seems that China is stepping up in a number of ways. I was just reading that a bunch of property developers there have started a green, a real estate green supply chain initiative where they're looking at all the raw materials and what are the supply chain practices in cement, steel, and iron. And um, you know, China is trying to fill a void that they think the U.S. Uh, may be making, if maybe creating, um, if we you know slow down on our own climate initiatives. There's a couple of things happening here. One is um, in India, there was this overbuild of capacity and they just like don't need to build out any new plants for many years. And now in uh, new tenders, new solar tenders, we're starting to see photovoltaic projects beating out coal projects. So there's um, a competitiveness issue and there's an overbuild issue. China has been responding directly to protests from people. This is one of the reasons why they've put a halt on so many coal plants, because there's actually boots on the ground activism. Um, you know, starting in 2011, 2012, we started to see protests and riots in the street about coal plants that were forcing people out of their homes, causing people to get really sick. Um, and 
that direct government pressure caused this top-down halting of coal plants. And on top of that, now you have these two countries post-Paris saying it's possible to shift away from coal. They already have these plans to put a halt on coal plants in place. And it makes them a lot more willing to get to the table and say, we think we can hit some of these voluntary targets. It's all this positive iterative cycle that kind of started in 2012, 2013. And I don't know that we can yet say we've hit peak coal, but the factors are certainly there. Um, and you could you could make a very clear case that we are uh, on that path or that we already have hit peak coal. You know, one thing I would mention, Stephen, that got some press was at the World Economic Forum, and I was actually sitting in the front row during this big debate, um, the Prime Minister of Bangladesh really got into a discussion with Al Gore about their Rampal coal plant uh, that they want to build. Now, Bangladesh being one of the countries that is most impacted by climate change, and this coal plant would go right near the largest uh, mangrove forest in the world. And this is, you know, there there is this big stressor that she feels on climate change mitigation versus economic development. She wants to develop her economy for her people. And there is nothing that she thinks um, should stand in her way of that. And, you know, Al Gore was just saying, you don't need to build this plant. We can do this in other ways. But um, I think that there are countries that are feeling that pinch where they want electricity and coal for them has been easy, although this still seems like a real reach because they're going to have to import all this coal. So that's just another thing that we need to think about is these countries really do want to have economic development. This offers some lessons for the U.S. Clearly, China is, I think, one of the most um, obvious examples because these demonstrations in the street directly resulted in the government and, and quite frankly, um, embarrassing stories internationally about how bad pollution had gotten forced the government to make changes and just put a halt on coal plants. And because of how obvious and how directly the pollution was hurting people, it made it easier to make these sweeping decisions. And we're at a point in the U.S. where there are clearly serious public health impacts and local environmental problems. But it's not the same. It's not as visible as it was in the 1970s and the 1980s um, when the EPA was created and the Clean Air Act was passed. Um, it makes it harder nationally on a political level to sell some of these environmental issues and therefore makes people more willing to accept the fact that they think the Environmental Protection Agency is way overstepping its authority and sets in motion this public narrative that the government is doing far too much on environmental protection. So, Marianne, I'd love for you to comment on that. What does the visibility of pollution do to make the case for making changes to regulations, for example? Um, what can we learn from the China example, where there has been this massive sweeping change in the last couple of years, simply because of how visible the pollution is. Well, on a different scale here in the U.S., I would argue that something similar has been happening. When you look at the 251 coal plants that have announced retirement in the United States, um, the vast majority of those had some very active local grassroots campaign that was mainly driven by 
local concerns about air pollution or water pollution. So kids with asthma, people with arsenic and lead and mercury in their drinking water. And it may not be the quite the gripping photos you see in the front page of the New York Times, you know, of, of Beijing air that, you know, can't see across the street. But when folks realize that their child, their asthma levels in the River Rouge neighborhood of, you know, outside of Detroit are much higher than anyone else in the state of Michigan, and they live next to two coal plants without scrubbers, uh, and they're, you know, everyone around them has asthma, it doesn't take a lot of, of organizing to get people involved in working to clean up that pollution in their community. So, and, you know, here in the U.S., the decisions about how we make electricity are primarily not made in Washington. They're made at the state and city level. Um, and, you know, again, utility commissions, city councils, et cetera. So, so here in the U.S., I think we've had our own version of that. It just has maybe been a little more under the radar. But when you talk about rolling that up to uh, people's understanding of the role of our federal environmental agencies, um, you know, I do think that we, uh, with our, our air is cleaner and our water are cleaner than they used to be, and we may take some of that for granted. But I, I also think that now that specific EPA programs, specific EPA initiatives are on the chopping block for the Great Lakes or the Chesapeake Bay, you know, or cleaning up Superfund sites or whatever it may be, uh, that suddenly uh, people are maybe realizing they can't take that for granted so much. And the very good local work that EPA does is, I think, kind of getting a new uh, revival of interest now that people realize it, it may not be something they can take for granted without a fight. Well, it's that time of the show when we tell our listeners something they may not know. And Marianne, as our guest host this week, you get to start first. All right. Well, I know a few episodes back, uh, Catherine mentioned my friend Dan Conant, who runs the group Solar Holler, which is uh, helping to train people from coal communities to become solar installers. So I have an update from them. Uh, they have 20 apprentices in their training program, uh, folks from coal communities learning to to become solar workers, and they're on track to build one megawatt of solar in coal communities this year. And there was just an article in the Sunday Guardian about how much harder it is to go solar in West Virginia because of our policies and about Solar Holler and the work they're doing to break down those barriers. So I'd love to give them another shout out. That's awesome. Thanks so much for the update. Catherine, how about you? Yeah, so I also have a very upbeat um, what you may not know, which is a report that the National Institute of Building Sciences and Green Sports Alliance put together um, under the aegis of the Department of Energy called Taking the Field, Advancing Energy and Water Efficiency in Sports Venues. And um, it's a great report on what teams, uh, pro and collegiate teams, are doing to promote energy efficiency and water efficiency at their arenas and other venues. So 68 pro teams have efficiency programs. 146 collegiate teams have programs. There are 80 lead certified sports venues, and they have saved $22.7 billion in revenue, which is huge. This is just amazing. So these programs that are, these are voluntary programs, just like Energy Star. These are programs that people feel like they need to come together on to make their um, venues um, more comfortable and more sustainable and more cost-effective. I wonder if there's any correlation between bracket performance, performance in March Madness, and energy efficiency. Well, I'd be willing to put money on it. 
We might need a whole new bracket. That's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one way to pick your choices. Um, I should have mentioned this way back at the beginning of the month, but I kept forgetting. This month is um, a campaign started by National Public Radio to get people to listen to podcasts. It's called Tripod, and they've started a hashtag on Twitter and on Instagram. And it's a way for you to make recommendations for podcasts that you listen to, to get people, your friends, your families, your colleagues, anybody who maybe maybe don't listen to podcasts or don't listen to the podcast that you listen to, to get them to give them a try. So of course, I'm going to ask you to use the tripod hashtag, that's T-R-Y pod hashtag to promote this podcast to anybody who you think would like it. And uh, also, of course, Marianne Hitt's podcast. You know, she co-hosts this show, No Place Like Home. You can get it also anywhere else you get podcasts. It's on SoundCloud and iTunes and so forth. And um, if you're really interested in climate change issues and the personal stories behind dealing with climate change, you should check it out. So you can listen to that and maybe recommend it through Tripod. Um, One non-energy podcast that I've been listening to recently is called Containers. It's this series from Alexis Madrigal, who's the uh, the editor-at-large at Fusion. He's doing this podcast about the shipping container industry and what it says about how the global economy works. I think it's like a six-part series. Highly recommend it. It's really good. Um, I love to see people who have just like never worked in audio come into the podcasting game and find new ways to tell stories. And I just think that if you love podcasts, you should use that hashtag, promote our show, promote Um, No Place Like Home, promote whatever show you are listening to. So thank you for joining us. We love your support. We want to thank Keiko New Energy for supporting this podcast. Um, Thank you to Marianne Hitt, the director of Sierra Club's Beyond Coal campaign, for joining us with Marianne Hitt and Catherine Hamilton. I'm Stephen Lacey, and this is The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. We will catch you next week. (music) 